Hello Brian's and possibly not Brian's. This is all the Brian's where a Brian interviews Brian's. And this episode is brought to you by the Tourism Office of Brian, Texas. Come to Brian and stay Brian. So this episode's Brian is such an interesting Brian that this is basically a double episode where we cover his decades-long experience in both shipwreck diving and his job as the paint for person at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Here's Brian. My name is Brian Reyna, and I am a four, foreman of the paint shop at the Museum of Modern Art. My, my technical title is four person. And you also have uh, what I understand is a very interesting hobby. What is that? Right. Uh, I'm also a deep sea wreck diver, so I, I do a lot of... Uh, diving to local shipwrecks and we got to cover both of these topics they, they you know they both sound incredibly intriguing like what type of wreck sites do you dive in like how did then did you get into this yeah so i i had been certified as a open water diver in texas and then i moved to new york and then i signed up for an advanced course and then i signed up for a master diving course uh just to keep going out just to keep diving to develop skills uh so then yeah, after I finished that master course, I started looking into like the local boats. I read a book called Shadow Divers, which I, I highly recommend. And that, Shadow Divers, okay. Yeah, that really uh, that really sort of pumped me up and got me really excited about because it's about two guys, local guys who basically discover a German sub off the Jersey Shore. And oh, it's shit. it's a very compelling read, you know, <laughs> shit, it's a very yeah. good read. <laughs> Uh, so that got me really excited, and, and it kind of opened up this whole um, culture of wreck diving that, that has been in the Northeast uh, for, you know, probably since, I mean, since like the 60s even, um, but... Okay, so you, so you got into wreck, you weren't necessarily just like motivated by treasure, you no, were just like... yeah, I just wanted to be, <laughs> I wanted to be out in the ocean, I wanted to be on the water, doing something with nature, I wanted to be out of the city, really, I just wanted but the But as far as wreck diving... Is, compared to just regular diving it was just like a natural progression in terms of like it became, it's like a culture here that you discovered sure kind of yeah because it was it was like i want to dive but i don't i don't want to keep going to this park yeah you know this quarry in pennsylvania and there's a bunch of boats that go out and they're only going to shipwrecks because there's no reefs or, or yeah i mean there are reefs but it's 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 not like caribbean reefs with corals and and you know pristine water and that kind of stuff so, you know, there were a handful, maybe half a dozen local scuba boats. And so I started looking into them and, and went, started going out with them just, you yeah. know, to, cause I was a newly certified master diver and I had to, you know, I wanted to get out in the water. And so I started, I just started like that, you know, just going, <laughs> finding the local boats and, and calling them up and going out on the weekends. And then I just kept doing it. And then, you know. Yeah. What, eight years? No. I mean, 11 years later, I'm, you know, so I'm still doing it. Now. So you have 11 years, yeah, you have 11 years experience now of doing this. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, how, I've got a bunch of questions about this, <laughs> but like just around like, I guess, shipwreck diving almost in general, uh, some of it I read, on, like I researched a little on like Wikipedia or whatever. It's like, you know, kind of surface level research. Sure. And I'm just like, you know, I'm curious if like, do you know more about how the wrecks are protected from like pillaging and looting and like plundering because well, like, i read like roughly that they're like uh you know historic wreck if they're more than 50 years old they're often protected through national laws for protecting cultural heritage or it's a military kind of wreck site then it's almost sometimes they're considered a war grave at least in the uk i read that yeah um 
then is every other kind of rec site just like up for grabs or like <laughs> yeah i mean kind of it's you, you you know you have two you basically have two um different opinions you have people who say like things should never be touched you know leave it as it is and then you have people who are like you know the stuff is all going to get washed away and disappeared anyhow like it's just a matter of time before the ocean yeah slowly eats away at the metals and it dissolves and it gets covered in sand and and so you have two camps right and and i've and and different wrecks have different different rules you know so like there's a, a shipwreck from world war one yeah it's uh the san diego and uh it's people that's a local one it's a local right and so people um still find um you know like uh rounds of you know oh, ammunition rounds. ammunition rounds yeah oh and, cool cool and, and so is that one that you are you saying is that's one you can you cannot you, you cannot take you from cannot that people do okay you shouldn't and you so imagine def- there's like how is it enforced? There's not like a scuba police down there, right? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you find some. But you're cool not stuff. like officially you're not supposed to take from like that specific one, right? And and part of that is because someone years ago took up a, a live round, was cleaning it or letting it soak in their in their garage, and it exploded in, in oh, that Long Island. Okay, so. so for some reasons like that, I guess. Yeah. Not just like these. 50 plus year cultural heritage laws. Right. I think it's mostly that. <laughs> it's also and then it's safety. also like it is a war grave and U.S. soldiers did lose their yeah. lives in that. Uh, and so families of, of them, I'm sure, would, would discourage people from looting the yeah. shipwreck. But I, I know some divers who have found little pieces of, like, for example, someone found a piece of rubber that had like a name on it and they did some research and they found out that the name of the the sailor that was on this shipwreck contacted the family you know and sent it to the family so it was kind of you know oh, that's super so, interesting yeah, yeah yeah so it's so i mean should you i mean should you not take stuff from but what if you're kind of so if it's so if it's a site where it's technically allowed then there's like almost like a the two ethical camps is that what you're saying right there's sites where it's just not allowed and then there's some sites where it's allowed but then you have these like two camps exactly okay. exactly yeah <laughs> exactly because there's some wrecks out there that who knows what they are they're they're yeah an old like they've been on not identified or, or maybe it's just some old you know what's a fishing vessel trawler that no one really cares about you can take whatever you want what's but, like a local shipwreck then that you that you can take stuff from um man i mean you, or i guess like what are some of the big uh the big new york like local just shipwrecks in general like, are there kind of like main, like well, well-known ones that this this rec culture? Yeah, there are. I mean, there's the San Diego is one of the more popular ones because it is okay. Uh, it is kind of open for recreational levels. It's the, the top of it is uh, at like can be up to like seventy feet, uh, and then the bottom of the wreck is at one hundred and ten. So it's it's easily diveable. Do you happen uh, to know how that one sunk? I. Th- if I remember correctly, I think it hit. A, I think there's some controversy about it. Like a, a little, it hit a little vessel like or was, something. There or? was um, that that it hit a mine. There was um, uh, okay. that it hit uh, that it was exploded. You know, we were gonna do. We were supposed to do an anniversary dive on it last year. I think it was a hundred year anniversary of it sinking. Yeah. And on the day we went out to dive it, there was a navy vessel over it, saying like not allowing any dive boats on it, and they said that they were 
doing research into how it, um, you know, more research into how it was sunk. I mean, that was something that was listed on the website, but who knows? Um, so, but, but that's an interesting one. There's the Oregon, which is also pretty, pretty uh, popular wreck. That's an old um, cross Atlantic, like a transatlantic. Oh, uh, it's like a big, uh, big, like kind of Titanic ish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it was an old paddle wheel. Uh, like it, not a paddle wheel. It, it, it was just like an old, the R, RMS Oregon. Is that right? Man, I, sh- I should really know these better. But, um, <laughs> it's all good. It's, um, I mean, and that's one that is pretty low lying. I mean, it's, there's some high, there's some spots on it that still stand up out of it, but it's, it's really, you know, flattened on, you know, on the seafloor. And that's at 130 feet. And people still pull up. This is one that, you know, that people pull stuff up. That you all can the take time. stuff from. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, people are, Finding old bottles like beer bottles. I have a friend that found some old, um, yeah, beer bottles. You know? oh, that's really cool. Yeah, and then some old like water. You know, the spring water. You know, that was for, you know, the upper first class passengers or whatever. And then someone a couple of years ago found uh, an old tuxedo that was in <laughs> in a valise. You know, they pulled it out and it it you know it was kind of damaged, severely damaged, but it was obviously a, a tuxedo. <laughs> um, and I guess because it had been packed in mud and it had been kind of tightly compressed that it was somewhat still... preserved? Yeah, yeah, somewhat preserved, exactly. You should just wear it sometime. Uh, right, right. So <laughs> the, I mean, story. you still find like plates and, and other random things on that one. And so, yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a popular one. Uh, another one that is one of my favorites is the... Uh, there's a U-boat off of Block Island. And that's at about 120 feet, 125 feet at its deepest. And that's uh, that's one that you can. Uh, it has two blast holes from where it was. I think it was sunk by warthogs. It, oh, it was wow. basically the last. Uh, the story is that after they declare the armistice, this uh, U-boat captain sunk uh, was still trying to sink boats, and it's. I think it. Hit sunk one or two on the day after the armistice and then they went out with warthogs and, and kind of bombed it and sunk it and so it's there off of block island in 120 feet of water and so you can swim in one blast hole swim through it oh, and sweet. then come up another one <laughs> and this is one it's kind of sick because i guess years ago people were taking um body parts like uh there was there were you know dead nazi soldiers on it so people oh, took shit. stuff from it and that was I mean that's kind of like the gross aspect, like like why would you know? Yeah. Why would you want to take that stuff? So there was someone else. This is all what I hear from stories. You know, people. Someone else then took the remaining body parts and kind of hid them in some spot. But a couple of years ago, there was um, uh, a skull of, and I didn't realize that it that's what it was. But you know, I'm, I'm there and it's pitch black. You can really only see like three feet in front of you so you're you're kind of looking at everything that's just in front of you and uh i'm some i'm down there like what is this white volleyball doing down oh wait a minute that's that's not a volleyball that's a skull you know and it it took a minute to realize like really yeah and like the first time i was down did that like just spook you out when you realized it totally i would spook the shit out of me yeah i i mean i wanted to get out of there so quick you know uh 
Oh, because I mean, I'm sure you probably never just ca- encountered a live like yeah. skull like, you know, or just like, out in the wild. Sure, I mean you, know? you hear about it, and, and you knew it was down there, but then to suddenly not a, like, like, be on, like a Disney World ride or something. Yeah, and not <laughs> only that, real... it's it's dark. You know, you can't yeah. see. You, you're like very could very easily get turned around, even though you know there's it's it's a tight space. It's a yeah. submarine. There's not a whole lot to room. There's really only two ways to go, but you still get you still kind of panic a little bit and, and then you have to don't panic. You kind of yeah. have to talk yourself down from that. Cause that's the thing you definitely do not want to do is, is to panic. You know? Yeah. So, uh. <laughs> but, and, and then you're inside this wreck and you're like, ah, oh, you know, you start, the, your mind starts to think of, of the worst and, and then you just, you got to calm yourself down from that. Oh, I can only, oh man. Yeah. You're, you're a much braver Brian than I am just even doing these. Like I, I, I've done like a, just a, a basic, I think, like, uh, scuba course one time when I was out, I don't know, on a vacation. And then I, it just wasn't for me. I was like, no, I, I felt a little too claustrophobic just being underwater like that. And I was just like... Right. Yeah, it's, it's just not for me. I, I, but, like, it, I would love to just, like, see the historical things that you're able to see this way. But in a way that I was <laughs> could handle. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm actually surprised just like reading, like just when I was doing a little bit of research, just like how many rec sites there are. Like, it's just, it was kind of crazy to me that like just how many there just that are out there. Like, you, like there was like 5,000 uh, just in the outer banks of like off North Carolina alone. Like, sure. you know, they call it like the graveyard of the Atlantic. But like, I mean, even I'm sure out here, like uh, along the Northeast, there's like just probably similar amounts of like just shipwrecks yeah, everywhere. Yeah, that, there's... Like, <laughs> It's kind of it's kind of wild to me that just like and I, they can't all be regulated, so you're gonna run into things like you know a skull, right? <laughs> Stuff like that, you know. Um, but do you do you ever then just like dive? Because uh, I've now I've heard that there's like you know there's artificial wreck sites. There's like purposely sunk like ships and like planes to create like kind of like reefs for sea life, marine life, is like habitats. Like you were saying, there aren't any like barrier reefs out here, but there's some like artificial wreck sites that are just made for almost kind of like doing that or also to just like you know sure dispose of things <laughs> yeah one of one of the wrecks we did a lot of training on was the algal and that was a big uh you know u.s military ship that was sunk purposely and that's it's a kind of a very pretty wreck because it's it's huge you can go inside and, and it you can get pretty deep and you can swim around it quite a bit and um but it's also you know if you dive it 15 20 times you can get a little bored of it you know um, oh yeah, 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 yeah. But that—that's one of the artificial reefs. You know, people always ask me about the scuba car. Uh, I'm sorry, not the the subway cars. You know, because oh yeah, they, I, did, they, I just read about that today. Actually, yeah. I saw it in some article about yeah, like the subway reef program. Like, uh. yeah, they they sink those, but those tend to, I think, because of the quality of the metal, they tend to rust and and sort of fall apart real quick. So you go. I've never dove on on any of them, but I know people that have, and they just say that's not really worth it because you don't you can't tell it's a subway car you know? oh really you're not like swimming through uh, an old subway car it's sort of they yeah they fall apart pretty quick interesting and okay then, uh but they they become good popular fishing spots you know <laughs> okay so that, and then that's a benefit of of those and i and i think that's part of why yeah so for for that. brian's that don't know I, I just read about this today that the uh it was a subway reef program that ran from like 2001 to 2010 the mta just like Deployed more than like twenty five hundred, uh, like 
deep, like just unused now train cars to underwater locations off the coast of Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, South Carolina, Georgia. Um, and it helped the agency avoid like $300 million in disposal costs. Yeah. <laughs> and there's yeah. actually a, uh, an exhibit then that I just saw as part of this is like going to be, is at the New York Transit Museum's like Grand Central Gallery hmm. um, called Sea Train. So it's just like a photography exhibit of these, I guess, submerged uh, subway cars. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I bet they look really cool for like the first like right when they were put down there yeah. and then a little bit covered in like some some right. marine life I and bet then like it's... two months after they're down there they got yeah. a little bit of growth on them some like yeah you know wispy kind of seagrass kind of hanging on somewhere yeah I bet they look really cool then but after about a year then, okay or yeah a year and a half so if this was this is since 2010 was it when it ended so they're probably all looking pretty uh, pretty shabby now yeah <laughs> I, I, I might have to check out that. Uh, yeah, if it's in Grand Central, yeah, yeah, uh, it's it's running through June sixteenth, is what, uh, yeah, that's what it read. Um, is there a Dreamwreck site for you then, like, uh, oh, for just for history or for just a challenge? Yeah, or like... you know, the last couple years, um, you know, the group I, that I dive with, we've been trying to make it out to the Andrea Doria, and Andrea Doria is is like. You know, a lot of people consider the Mount Everest of wreck diving. Oh, I, I don't know okay. that it is anymore, but back, you know, say 15, 20 years ago, it was. Um, In terms of uh, like a challenge. Yeah, the challenge of it. Um, and it was, that this was uh, an Italian luxury liner that was, um, it was, you know, one of the most beautiful ships ever created, they say. Yeah. Uh, and... So they, um, in fact, I have a funny story about the paint room, but they, (laughs) they, um, yeah, they, people have been diving on it. I think in this, I forget when it went down, maybe in the seventies, late sixties, it went down. So it's, it's one of these wrecks that people for years have been pulling up all kinds of treasure, you know, treasure being dishes and, and, you know, China and, and, you know, just really cool stuff that, that is now slowly like that shipwreck is disintegrating and but what makes it a, like the the mount everest or i think challenge? just the challenge it's it's far it's it's far out there so it takes you know it takes depending on how fast your boat is going it, it, it can take anywhere from 12 to like 36 hours or something to get out there um and then and it also depends down. on where you're leaving from if you're leaving from nantucket it's a little bit closer okay. but if you're leaving from jersey or new york it's going to take a little bit longer and then the weather i think it the weather changes quickly out there. The currents, it's its sort of near where the Gulf Stream comes into play. And, and um, yeah, the currents change quickly. So if, and it's its deep, you know, it's 230 feet. So um, if you're down for a little bit of time, you have to do a long deco. And, uh, you know, and the currents change. It can be challenging, you know. Um, and a lot of people have died over the years. And, and a Just lot of, in terms of, like, just for various conditions, like yeah, uh, it's it's. I think a lot of it's conditions at that depth or at the current, and like just various factors. Kind various of factors. Uh, the majority of it, though, I think is is treasure fever. People getting uh, excited about pulling stuff up and then kind and then of going losing past sight their, of yeah. maybe their training. Exactly, exactly. They they kind of lose sight of the objective, which is to get up safely, and then they're you know they're focused on pulling up whatever plates or glasses or whatever they might find. Um, yeah. And then it's just, you know, yeah. So there's, there's, it seems like every year at least one person dies on, on that wreck. 
That's crazy that there's like I just watched that free solo documentary of rock climbing. It's like it's the El Capitan or whatever sure. of of, yeah. of wreck diving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's like I would love to get out there. I would love to get out there. I'm I'm super nervous about it and. Um, but I, but I if you're at that, you know, if you're getting at that skill level, it'll probably, you know, it'll eventually happen. <laughs> I, you know, I hope so. Like the last three years we've sort of been blown out or, you know, you gotta, that's the other thing too, is you gotta have a perfect window of, of weather. You know, you gotta have uh, yeah, four yeah. or five days when the weather is going to be at least three days when the weather is going to be good. But if it looks like it might pick up, you know, it could, you know, it might get questionable. And I think now boat captains are a lot more, um, safety conscience than they used to be you know i think back in the day people you'd you know you read these crazy stories of guys going out and the seas are huge and and you know that that was part of that hardcore wreck diving culture that that i you know sort of drew me to this <laughs> uh hobby or passion if you will uh and it's not yeah. so much anymore i mean there's still some hardcore you know um uh, diving and people but but there's there's a lot more safety in it these days i mean uh, yeah <laughs> you know because back in the day people were diving that andrea doria on air uh and nowadays like you you would be a fool to do it um on you, you would be an idiot to do it on air um what do you but, mean by on air well air with with um so they're basically like mixed gases uh and and if you're diving deep or doing yeah. any serious diving you should have a mixed gas which means you have less i um you know, you have variations of the oxygen levels in that gas or variations of the nitrogen levels, which will affect uh, how long you have to decompress, yeah. uh, how much uh, you, you... So there's... So if you're diving air, which is 21% oxygen, effectively 79% nitrogen, and then, you know, whatever in other inert gases, um, you're going to have a lot of decompression, because of that, the amount of nitrogen in that in that mix is going to make you have to stay underwater longer in order to get to the surface. So, you know, I don't know the numbers offhand, but like, let's say you go down to 230 feet for 30 minutes on air, you're going to have to hang for like two or more hours, you know, just just to get to the surface. Oh, I and, see. I see. Okay. And if one of those tanks has a problem, or if you lose one. You're screwed. That's you're you're dead, is what you are. You know. So, and if if your buddy has, if you're sharing, you know, because you can only take so many tanks, and, and if something happens, and, you, and you're relying on your buddy's tank, and he disappears or she disappears or something, then you know you're screwed. Um, and if you have to make an emergency ascent, I don't. You know, there's so many things that can go wrong. And and so nowadays, you know, like I dive with a, a rebreather, a closed circuit rebreather, and so everything. You know, in theory, if if you you have your bailout, your backup tanks, but in theory, you have everything in this system that will keep you alive, and you're recycling, you're recycling your your gas, your ex, you know, you exhale your breath, and that gets uh, recycled in in the unit so that you can continue. So you're not losing gas. You don't have to take a bunch of gas with you. You can go with a little bit of gas, and then have your bailout, your your safety measures, you know, with you. Um, so it makes it much more safe yeah. and you can always, and, and basically you, it allows you to optimize that gas mix. So, so are people doing it before on air? Was it just because the, like the 
just like the community of knowledge wasn't there exactly. or the technology exactly. or whatever wasn't yeah. quite there. It was, it was something like the Navy used to use uh, uh, helium. Helium? Yeah. Um, and so it, it for a long time it was considered like a voodoo gas, you know, by, by like guys who didn't maybe fully understand it or didn't because there's a lot of physiology physio, physiology involved in it and how it reacts in your body so the navy's yeah, yeah, been yeah. doing a lot of of tests you know for years yeah decades you know um and so this in there and that knowledge is slowly kind of filtered out into the diving community and they, they slowly over time picked up the nit- uh, helium adding helium to in place of the nitrogen because the nitrogen is really what you don't want to be breathing because um yeah, because under pressure, the nitrogen uh, bubbles become so small that they exit the blood vessels and enter into other tissue in the Isn't body. That cold, like, is that lead to like the bends exactly. kind of a thing? Exactly. Yeah. Have you yeah. ever had a bad like uh, incident or experience of having the bends or anything? I, I personally haven't. I, I had a, like a scare one time where I thought maybe it was like I had a my left arm was sore after diving and I thought it was, you know. Yeah. an issue of the bends because there's you know there's places where it you feel it first and they say like your joints like your elbows and your in your shoulders and um so i i kind of thought i was experiencing the bends but it turned out it was a pulled muscle because it was sore <laughs> for like the next year and a half <laughs> no, it's like one of the things where you're like am i having a heart attack no oh, it's yeah just a... <laughs> right just a... yeah so is your uh so i guess yeah like that that sounds like a a great like a dream wreck dive um is it like would it also be kind of cool to then like like that book you you mentioned like to just like discover an unknown shipwreck yeah but are you ever even like in situations where you're not like wreck diving in the to a known wreck in the first place so you might sure now okay. there's um you know because you know we've been diving i say we like the the group of people i dive with we're you know we're pretty close at at this point we've been diving together for the last you know, six or seven years, and and typically it's like the same uh, six to a dozen people that are you know together, and and so over the years we've we've kind of you dive the same wreck, and kind of like okay, well, what next? So some some of my uh, dive buddies have bought uh, um, what do you call them the uh, side side scan sonar um, to oh. basically run it behind the boat, and it takes a so another friend has has uh, is really good with numbers and is going through like satellite information and, and picking up potential numbers of of um, I mean he's using all kinds of I don't to know like to find potential to find potential wrecks that wrecks. may not be known yeah, uh, yeah. that's cool <laughs> yeah so you most like so most likely you would be yeah, most likely you would discover them almost uh, on the surface. Sure. Before you, you get down there, or it's more like you would have a hunch on the surface. You would have a hunch based on several fishermen's, you know, sort of. Because usually the fishermen know, oh, you know, there's something down there because there's always biting. Yeah. So you, you, you like, at some point, you got to rely on on numbers from fishermen, and maybe you get you you have to develop relationships with them, right? And then yeah. and then. <laughs> they will be more friendly to give you the numbers that, that are uh, secret, their secret numbers <laughs> that they don't want to share with other people. And so maybe you get 
two sets of numbers from different fishermen that are both secret. You might know, okay, that's, that's, there's something there, and it's <laughs> not listed on any of the uh, dive sites you know, or dive websites, so let's go check out yeah. that spot. And then you take the side scan sonar out there, and you kind of look for anything that might be wreckage. So there's a few spots that, that we are uh, looking for potential uh, wrecks that haven't been discovered. You know, nice. Okay, well, I guess so. That can be like your uh, your second dream, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. So Something. SS it was Andrea Doria, and then now discovering an unknown shipwreck. You know, right. Right. both of those would be pretty sweet. They absolutely <laughs> would be. Absolutely would be. What is the actually? So I was reading a little bit about the classifications of divings. Like, I'm just curious. Like, what is the type of actual diving you do? Like, how it's classified? And I was like. Divide into like three categories: non-penetration diving, limited penetration diving, and pull trend penetration diving, which is like beyond the light zone. I imagine that if you're doing deep sea diving, it's probably that last one, right? Yeah, like, exactly. So, okay, so recreation diving is limited to the light zone, and tech. So this is considered technical diving. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. What are the other types of just like just dangers of doing this that you know? that are out there for, for deep sea diving. Um, well, I'll tell you something that happened. You know, people ask me what was this, one of the scariest things, you know, your experience. And I had this moment last year where... Aside from running into a, a human skull. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was this was almost even more scary. Uh, yeah, I mean, a different in a different way because you, mm-hmm. you hear about this and people warn you about it and then for you to suddenly experience it, you're like, oh, shit, here I am. What, what am I going to do in this situation? Um, I was on a wreck that was really dark. It was in the mud hole. Mud hole is an area. Um, because these deep sea dives, it's like they're if it since it's beyond the light zone, like so limited penetration diving is within the light zone. These full penetration diving is beyond the light zone. So that means most of these dives you're doing are just like completely dark, right? Except for the lights that you provide. Exactly. Yeah, okay. you have yeah you have a huge light, and, you, and then you have backups too. Um, yeah. And and sometimes. Like the the one this you know this wreck that I was on last year, um, where it, it was in the mud hole. It was so dark that your light wasn't even penetrating more than a foot. It was just because it, it was just black blackness. Um, and you go inside the wreck and you can't see anything. So you're you're kind of feeling around. Um, and then you know I was with uh, my dive buddy. She got stuck, and then took me a minute to realize that she was stuck and then I'm trying to feel trying to figure out what's what's what she's stuck on um and then you know so we kind of we're in this dark zone you kind of can't you're kind of running into stuff so you're it's you know it's a little it's a little like you know tight yeah to say the least and and um and so at some point you're like I'm not doing. You gotta get out of here because we're we're just we're not going anywhere. We can't see anything. We're you're getting stuck. I'm gonna get. So let's. So we we start to get out of there. Yeah. And uh, I was running a reel. So a reel is basically a, a rec reel. You have a line that you would you attach near the the um, near the anchor where the boat anchors to the the shipwreck, right? So you attach a reel to that, and then you have that as your safety to get back to the anchor line. Right, that way you know where the boat's at. You can get up and get home safely. Yeah. So, I, so my my partner, she 
you know, went for the window, which was right there, and you can kind of see. So she went out the window. What do you mean I, the window? Like the there window was of a, the boat? Yeah, because we were inside the shipwreck. We of the, in, yeah, of the wreck. Yeah, yeah, we were inside a cabin, and you can. There was very little light, and what the only light you could see was was from this window. So you kind of knew, okay, we're inside. Out there is outside, and it was a, a spacious window enough to kind of get through with all your gear on. And so she kind of beelined for that window and and got up. I had the reel, so I was. I had to kind of follow the reel to get out because I didn't want to leave it there. You know, it's a $180 piece of equipment that, uh, you know, so I figured I'm going to, I'm going to reel myself out and I'm get back to the top and I'll, I'll meet her on the top of the boat, the ship. And as I'm, I, I make my way out and I'm on top of the wreck and then I'm reeling and I'm really, there's no tension on it. And I'm like, Oh, that's weird. There should be more tension on, on the line. And I'm, reeling it in and then sure enough i see the end of the line come into view and it had been cut on the on an edge sharp edge of the wreck which is something you know you always hear about and then and so the 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 means i had of getting back to the boat were suddenly not there and it's so all uh, you could count on was just going towards that light a little bit of light and then sure hoping that you're gonna go in the right direction yeah i I mean i kind of knew there was this moment where you know you're you're like, oh crap! Should I panic now? And then no, no, you like just you got to go in that direction because I knew, yeah, you know which direction the line was coming from. So obviously I'm going in that direction, and you know, the, it wasn't a wide shipwreck, you know, so it wasn't hard to navigate in terms of I came from that direction. That direction's not the right way. There's only two directions you can go because it was so narrow that. You know the le- the starboard and port side were were you know yeah. kind of right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, so it it was fine. I, I went a few and a few feet for it. And I realized where I was at. I found my buddy. You know, we went back in the right direction. Made it. so everything was fine. But there's but that, it was like that, that mental. Yeah, that, and especially since it was unexpected. I think that's the main thing. Or maybe it was like that. It was just that all of a sudden this thing you were relying on mentally at least. Or, you know, right. is now, not there anymore. Right, right. And now where that could be a problem is, you know, say, for example, something else goes wrong. Like, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, shoot, my tank is leaking. Or maybe you're inside the wreck and you hit something and it punctured your dry suit. So suddenly now you have water coming in your dry suit, you know, and then this thing. Uh, so it, it's, it's always this, like, I know how things could go bad real quick unless you're always kind of managing every problem that arises. So you, you sort of always have to be aware of, of what's going on around you because if something goes wrong and then yeah. something else goes wrong, then you could find yourself in a... Because like, yeah, you, like, how, like do you, you I'm, sure, I'm sure you don't even have just like just one light, you right. know? Right, yeah. Because it's like, okay, in case that light goes out or malfunctions exactly then, yeah then so like how many lights do you like bring like usually i have oh i have the the my main light and then i have two backups two yeah. two backups and i have one that i could reach with my left hand and then i have one that i could reach with my right hand in case one hand but even is, in a case but in an instance environment like this where it's like you can't even see more than a foot it's still it's like yeah yeah <laughs> you're you're just going by feel and, that, and, and then that, that line case. goes is you get to the end that you're pulling that reel that's oh nope that's the line got snagged. Right. So that's, yeah, then you're just like, okay, you just got to trust. 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the trust the direction. Yeah, I could see how that'd be freaky. Not to mention that I'd already be freaking out in that pitch dark, like claustrophobic environment in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could. I would never do that. Uh, <laughs> so like, what? Uh, like, is there like fish? Like other things you can get like just caught in, like or like you know get snagged in. You know, is, like, there's is that another f- danger. Fishing well? line, you know, it's is is um, fishing line. Okay, it's pretty. Oh, cause yeah, you said like the, all these fishermen kind of know where the wreck sites are, so there's probably some fishing lines that then get snagged to the wreck sites. As yeah, well. exactly. There was a wreck three years ago that we kind of had, we went to, and it, it, it was a wreck that. A lot of people, I guess, it wasn't on a, a lot of boats list of a wreck to go to because we went there and there was, it was, I mean, just covered in portholes, you know, yeah. and portholes are like a very cool treasure to pull up, you know, from the, from a, the ocean, you know, mm-hmm. um, and they were just all over the place, all over the bottom of this wreck. And it was, it was like, uh, like you it was Christmas time. Everyone, you could hear people like, woo, underwater. <laughs> and, uh. But this, because so few people had been diving on this, there was fishing line all over the place. So you would swim three feet, and you were you were snagged, okay. and then you okay. have to pull out your knife or your scissors and, and cut yourself, or you keep an eye on your buddy and make sh- sure they're not getting snagged. And, and you know, yeah. so then at some point, you know, I think I got snagged twice, and then I just was swimming with my scissors in front of me, like, and, and then every time I felt something, I would you know just cut it away. So there are uh, other hazards like that or, or sometimes nets fishing nets get snagged on on boats and uh i ha- it hasn't happened to me but i've heard a story of somebody getting stuck in it and then a you know stuck in a, in a fishing net that was on the boat and then in the effort of trying to free themselves got themselves even more stuck and had to someone else had to come in and kind of cut them free a little bit so but in the realms of dangers scuba diving is is like these Entanglements is that like one of the lesser problem or like just percentage wise like less thing you have to worry about or yeah I think right if I mean it's it's um yeah if you're a recreational diver you, you it's very you, you're not gonna have to deal with it too too much if but if you're like, going what's the into number, shipwrecks like, what, what hmm. is the book more like the would you consider like the number one danger man I think it's just uh, In, number one danger is just it's just um, like tank man, gas tank management, or is it like that's that's a big one. I, I think it's just uh, it's what's the word? It's it's sort of personal failure. You know, I think I think that's the number one danger is is like you didn't, you know, you didn't you weren't paying attention when you put your gear together, and then you jumped in and something wasn't right and that oh, failed. I see. Yeah. And then so you and I've learned these lessons the hard way where where like you know, I was having fun and talking and shooting the shit when I was putting stuff together. And then I jumped in and, uh, you know, then suddenly there's, I, I'm getting a flood and my loop is filling with water. And so that's all, that's, that's on me. Uh, that, that's all my fault because I wasn't paying attention and I, I lost track of, of putting my gear together and got yeah. sidetracked and wasn't focused on it and didn't do the checks that, yeah. That is yet you're supposed to do that, you know, would prevent these failures. Yeah. So I think it's it's sort of user error is yeah. it's almost the, like yeah, like driving a car. It's just like most of the accidents are just like human error a lot of times. Exactly. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you always then uh you mentioned this group that you go with, do you always dive with other people? Is that just generally like weird to ever dive by yourself kind of a thing? 
You know, again, there's like two camps. There's people who say you never dive solo. Don't do it. It's the stupidest. Don't, you know. And then there's other people like, you know, if if you can't trust yourself diving, then maybe, you know, you shouldn't. Like, you you have to be able to trust yourself to get yourself out of the shit. Because, like, I would never go uh, diving and then if something were to happen, expect people to help me out. Like, I, I need to be able to get myself out of trouble or not get into trouble in the first place or be able to recognize it or you know so yeah i think philosophically every dive is a solo dive because it's it's you know even even if i'm diving with other people i still consider it a solo dive i might just keep an eye out on them and vice versa or we're just hanging out together underwater but i still think like I, i need to be able to to um trust myself to get myself out of and if if i don't trust myself, then i shouldn't be diving you know uh, yeah it totally makes sense um so <laughs> has 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 on shipwreck diving now has it ruined normal ships for you mm. so now when you're on a ship are you like well it'd be sweet if i could just go up there but i can't swim up there right now Right. Yeah. Yeah. In these different rooms, you're like, you're just imagining this whole thing underwater. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, funny enough, like you know, you put a bunch of divers on a on a boat, and you see a big ship coming by, and a lot of them are like, man, I wish that thing would sink, man. That would be a great dive. (laughs) And uh, you know, it's all in jest, but but usually you do see ships, and you're like, man, that would make a great dive. Imagine that thing on the bottom of the ocean. That would be an amazing dive. Yeah, do you, um, do you have any upcoming dives uh, that you planned um, for this year? Yeah, nothing in particular. We were, you know, I was a little bit ambivalent about, you know, so far because I don't know what my schedule is going to be like over the summer. So I'm, yeah, I haven't quite uh, committed to anything. You know, people have, have started emails a few months ago, kind of filling out, you know, general schedules or good weekends of of going out and trying to get some stuff in the books because you know some of the boats fill up pretty quickly so you gotta you know claim the spot first and 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 um hopefully hope the weather is good that weekend so usually around memorial day is when stuff really kind of kicks in i forgot to ask if you could estimate like how many actual wreck dives have you actually done mm, i would guess a couple hundred a couple hundred yeah wow i i mean i try to go every weekend you know if, if i'm not doing anything and yeah and i'm i'm gonna try to be on a boat you know nice. um no oh, it's really it's really cool it's really like interesting to know about this culture just because it's not something i feel like i don't i don't know if i've ever met a shipwreck diver before yeah <laughs> but uh we're here at moma right where you're a paint foreman uh paint for you're the paint for person are you a paint for person or are you the four person paint for person uh, the, i don't yeah i go quite understand the, how the structure works yeah so so um yeah really it's it's so i'm i'm the four person four man you know i, I guess the four person is you know be inclusive um so it, it, basically we have a team of like four full-time painters who work at moma and paint the walls and keep them clean you know f- all the time Essentially, every day uh, there's there's something to clean or paint, um, and so we also have temp painters who come in all the time because depending on how many projects we have going on and, and how busy we are, so we usually have one or two. Typically, it's been two for the last year, um, and then basically just manage the the jobs and make sure the guys are getting the work done according to whatever work orders come in or to 
you know, my, my job is essentially to kind of prioritize work and have an idea of what sort of needs to get done sooner rather than later, and then to kind of direct the guys in that, uh, to, to that end. Okay, so how many guys do you say it was? Like two to four or four uh, on staff? Yeah, there's four, including myself, plus uh, two temporary painters. So Just based on project by project kind of a Yeah, assignment. I would say there, for the last year, two years, there's, there's been five guys. Okay, and uh, so these are the people you're supervising. Um, and then, like, how do you fit into the structure with, like, I guess who – like, uh, are you collaborating with or getting, like, figuring out what the assignments that you need to, you know, take care of are? Like, it's like, uh, uh, kind of curators or... Right. Um, so, so my, I work, the department I work in is the Exhibition Design and Production Department. And <clears throat> they work with the curators to uh, develop shows and come up with the design and, uh, you know, the color or the palette for whatever show it might be, for every show. Um and then, and then those kind of get uh, directed down to me, and then, and then, and then I sort of direct it to other people. And sometimes it's just a matter of of rehanging a a, a, a whole gallery. You know, they decide that they're going to move one piece that's going to go on loan, but it affects the whole flow of the gallery. So everything kind of gets shifted around. So sometimes it's that. I mean, sometimes it's painting the whole exhibition gallery. And sometimes it's just touching up the museum, and and throughout the course of a day, it's probably all three of those things at, okay. at any given time. Maybe there's maybe around like three million people that come in here a year, which you know roughly equals about like eight thousand people per day, um, and the wear and tear that that kind of all involves. So like, is it just that you're frequently having to paint the same kind of spaces that have to change a lot? Or is the maintaining the spaces more uh, of your workload throughout the year? Yeah, so there there are uh, exhibition galleries that f you know will uh, have three exhibitions throughout the course of the year. At least that's been um, the the schedule for the last several years. It might change in the future. I think it will change. I'm not sure how it's going to change. How the new building will affect you know the the you know the schedule of of exhibition shows. I, I have a feeling it won't. If anything, it'll probably increase the amount of shows that happen. But basically, um, there are three three major large galleries. You know, the sixth floor, um, two galleries on the sixth floor, and the one on the second floor. That would change. You know, throughout the course of the year, three times. So we're we're always in there repainting those. And you know, you imagine those walls get painted. Uh, you know, get at least six coats or more every year. So they build up. And so, so all, there's inevitably a moment when you have to kind of sand that wall down or skim it out or kind of take, uh, you know, take advantage of whatever time you might have to, to try to bring it back to a clean, you know, state. Yeah. Um, so there, there is some maintenance. You know, a lot of it is maintenance and trying to, for example, like the tidal walls, they always get they get beat up because um, the you know the the titles of the shows are painted on, and so that has to get sanded down. And then it, it, there's just a lot of work of trying to get it back to a state of when it can be sort of uh, clean and, and look nice. So that's it's you know it's a constant battle. You're putting stuff on, and then you kind of have to take it off. Stuff being paint really in, in spackle and compound. Um, how long have you actually then done this job and 
How, like, how much are you, are you involved with the actual painting, or is it more supervisory? Right. Well, yeah, good question. I mean, because I, I used to be, I was, before I was the four person, I was the house painter. Basically, I, I was, um, you know, the house painter is sort of like the number one painter. And, and that just means that they are more trusted to be around the artwork. You know, you asked earlier about working around art handlers. And that's that's when when that kind of comes into play, where you know they're hanging something that uh, a painting, and you got to touch up right next to it because it scuffed the wall, or maybe there's a hole that is now visible, and they want it touched up. So you got to be very careful, and 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 so that's how I, I started off in that role, and I worked for five, I think about five years, in two thousand as the house painter. Yeah, yeah, and then and then I just. You know, I think a lot of people just trusted me and trusted my abilities to to uh, be aware of the environment and what was going on around me. So, um, so then you didn't I, ruin any uh, you know artwork. You yeah, know, you, know, you didn't right. destroy least, any masterpieces. Sure, yeah, at least on record. <laughs> yeah. That's the, the official story. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't. Not that I. Not that I'm aware of. I mean, I, are I there uh, any uh, you know? Not, not that you're aware of under your supervision or uh, here. Are there any uh, instances that you've heard of in the you know the, at the paint form and there four, are... four person club? You know, yeah. Any museum stories you've heard of? <laughs> well, there's one incident that I recall. You know, because the the old foreman, you know, who the guy who was in charge when I was uh, when I first started, you know, he was um, he was he was a little bit of a character to say the least. I mean, he was he was really kind of. Uh, I, mean, I would just say he was a character. Uh, so, you know, there was this story I heard from him and also from some other people about uh, about how, I guess they were hanging a print in one of the lobbies and they asked him to do a touch-up and then there was paint like all over the frame. Um, and then it, it kind of turned into a big, a big deal, but they looked out the camera. I mean... Again, I don't. It was a story I heard from hearsay, and <laughs> nothing came of it because they went on the camera and it was just out of view on the camera. So they, they could, they didn't know who did it. Uh, oh, you know, man. I talked to someone in the registrar department, and they were pretty convinced that one person had done it. Um, so there's all these theories, and no one really knows how it happened or what happened. I, you know, there's some suspicion that someone didn't like the old foreman, and then you know. Sabotage, <laughs> sabotaged it, but oh man, uh, uh, I, I mean, I guess I can only imagine that like how careful you have to be here compared to like a, maybe a normal painting site, yeah, around some like priceless works of art, like yeah, uh, you 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 sort of pick up on the on the um, tension, you know, when you're as a painter, you walk into a room around a bunch of extremely expensive paintings or artworks and. You know, it's like, oh, what are you doing here? Are you, you going to paint now? Are you here to paint? You know, and you're kind of like, well, you know, I was asked to, but I, I, I don't have to paint now. You know, if it makes you feel better, if I can paint, you know. So it, there is, you know, some curators or, or um, you know, if artworks will come to the museum for a show from a different museum and they send uh, one of their representatives with that painting or artwork yeah. to just to keep an eye on it and make sure that it arrives in good condition. And so they're couriers. People call them couriers. So working around couriers sometimes get a little bit like, you know, 
They don't. They don't. Yeah. You don't want to be seen painting around when the careers are around. So there's there's it. it, it, it really, like in general, do, are you? Is the painting just not done around the artist? Painting is done before the art gets in place, or yes, in general, that's how it should be done. But like I said. It, Everything is always being shifted an inch or two or up or down. Or yeah, maybe. I can imagine. Yeah. You know, so sometimes <laughs> that you know shift of a quarter or an inch or whatever it might be might reveal a hole, and then you got to touch it up. Yeah. And then maybe there's directions that once the courier leaves, you know that that painting cannot be removed. So you got to go up and touch up the wall near the painting or artwork. And I say painting because a lot of the times the bigger ones aren't covered in uh, plexiglass or something like that so it gets um you got to be careful it with if something is covered in plexiglass you can be a little bit less careful even though you sh you don't want to get paint on anything really but um what about uh you know has there like been accidents for uh you know, people in the museum. Well, <laughs> not not staff accidents. You know, there's eight thousand roughly people here a day uh, coming through. Like, what kind? Of, have you had any thought of any accidents that have happened with the artwork? Um, not necessarily paint related. You know, there was a f uh, kind of a funny story. You get the paint over graffiti, like do you, I mean? <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. There's there's uh, I mean there's there's a security guard that graffitis all the time uh, and you it's the same graffiti and it's always where a security guard stands so so it's like all right you know it's a security guard and you imagine it's probably they're probably just bored and you know maybe they're doing it but uh, yeah i haven't experienced anything sort of uh grossly um you know that that i can make a note of but there was an incident that um comes to mind when the Bryce Martin show was here, I think that was many years ago, six or maybe eight or nine years ago. Um, and his paintings are all very um, sensitive to, you know, to touch. And they're, they're I think they're, they have a lot of wax. So they show any kind of fingerprint or anything like that. So they had these barriers, these sort of stanchions in front of the paintings to prevent people from getting close to them. But the, you know, the stanchions were, um, about as high as your shin, you know? So there was a, uh, an older lady, I believe it was an older lady, who was, you know, get, trying to get a closer look to the painting and ac accidentally tripped over the stanchion and fell into the painting. So I, I thought it was kind of uh, ironic that the thing <laughs> that was placed there to protect the work became Creative, the, the, the yeah. thing, the, the, the accelerator. Yeah. The so catalyst, that, I guess. To <laughs> right. But, I mean, it was... I think I think Bryce Martin uh, fixed it, you know. So I, I think it, it turned out to be, you know, not a big deal. But it was, it was one of those moments where I was like, oh crap, that that happened, you know. Yeah, but uh, so we getting back to then. I guess yeah, how long you've been uh, the paint for person? I guess we never quite right. answered that question. Right. You said you've been the house painter for what, like you said, five years or something. Yeah. So I, I started in two thousand six uh, as a temp painter, and after a year, I became. I was hired and I became, uh, you know, I guess considered the house painter or, you know, painter one, whatever that title was. Because you're so careful around all the artwork. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And I became that go-to guy who if they ever had touch-ups or needed something done in a gallery where there was art and it was, you know, you had to be very careful. I was I was that person uh, that, that did that. And then um, 
so yeah, so when the old foreman moved moved on, I think this was 2008. No, 2012. Sorry, 2012. I became the four person. Um, okay, so you've been doing this this job since 2012. So right. You, you, okay, so you you yeah you are quite experienced here. You're like you've uh, yeah you've seen it all. You you're like the authority on the the moment paint here. And it feels very <laughs> weird because I this is you know this is the longest job I've ever had and. I, it's, it's, it's a weird place to be sometimes, you know, cause I, <laughs> I can only imagine. I mean, I have no idea, but I can only yeah. imagine. <laughs> I, you know, I call it, I feel like I, I call it affectionately uh, a golden cage because it's, it's, um, it's a very nice place to work. It's, it's a good environment. Um, and you know, I, I'm an artist myself, so I, I like being around art and I like being in this environment and being so close to these masterpieces. And, and I used to really love being that that house painter because I would walk around through the museum in the morning and clean clean the galleries so I would be in the galleries all by myself with just the artworks and that was great I mean I absolutely yeah that's an that. experience that like no one else gets really yeah. or like hardly anyone gets you know right and to do that you know four or five days a week it was it was you know I really took advantage of it could 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 look at paintings and I was always rediscovering new things and paintings, and I love museums in general. Yeah, I don't go to them as much anymore now that I work in one full. I don't want to go to a museum on a weekend. To, well, uh, yeah, like you. <laughs> but I, I do love being in museums. Uh, if I travel someplace, it's always you know on my list, well, on the top of my list of places to go. Uh, it would be like the local museum. Um, you're but kind of I like sh- the uh, you're kind of like the uh, almost the unsung hero though of this museum. I feel like do you ever just go up to people during during your you should just go up to people during your off day and like next to artwork and just be like you see that and just point to the wall and be like that was me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean it's funny you say that because there is there is one big wall in the atrium that uh, that years ago they had a graffiti uh, piece on and then um, and then it had to get painted painted out so uh i painted that wall and i didn't have any help doing it it was all me i painted the whole thing and i like to say that you see that wall yeah i painted i painted yeah, that yeah. it's huge it's you're, a big wall it's you're, it's you're like the unsung hero is this the museum you know but it has this ruin now going to just like you know walking around other buildings where you like notice just shoddy paint jobs that like a normal person yeah wouldn't notice absolutely that's all it's, it's ruined always, buildings for you <laughs> yeah i can't help you know like for example in this room right now across from me is is you know these all these nicks these chair marks basically from, from yeah. where the chair and i can't not look at those and, and sort of be like and you're just like i just want to get i just want to come yeah it's like okay that's something up. that's got to get uh got to do but uh so yeah there's there's it it does get very hard to not notice those things i feel like i'm always noticing uh is there ever in a show or exhibit that had like a just a weird or particularly challenging space that needed to be painting painted <sighs> Can you think of any uh, particular? Oh man, um, the the Bjork exhibit was, was the Bjork. Okay, no. <laughs> that was an uh, interesting <laughs> and uh, challenging exhibit. Um, Can you describe a little? Uh... You know, it was it was if you took like a a fun house, yeah, and and um, made it into like a, I mean, a fun house and made it into a sort of musical ensemble retrospective that's exactly what it was it was you know it, it was in the atrium it, it was sort of a it was an interesting concept you know but it was something so unusual something that you know had to be completely built in the atrium 
So it didn't. So can you describe a little of like what uh, that you actually was the challenging part of the paint of the, of the job? Uh, well, for you? it was just because there was a lot. Uh, it was something that we hadn't built before. It was a new. Um, it was a new. It was. It was. You know. It wasn't. You know. Four walls and maybe a floating wall. So it's sort of. It was outside of of what was normally. Um, like a three dimensional thing. That kind of. A thing. Yeah. It was. It was. It was just different. It was. It was so <laughs> different that that you didn't really know how to plan, how to paint it because uh, there were so many things involved, mechanical things, and uh, so many elements of of you know he had. So every day there was, you know, there were some people doing scenic painting or some kind of, and then there was people wiring up some rotating thing. And, and you're in a small, tight space. I mean, it's literally like a funhouse where, where you're, it's like a maze. So it was, it was, you know, and they're dropping carpet down. So it was just a <laughs> lot going on. Um, so that stands out to you as probably one of the more challenging, uh, you know, jobs for, for your wheelhouse. <laughs> Yeah, because it was there was a lot to do, and it was in a short amount of time, and and there was so much going on that you couldn't really do which had to do. So it just ended up being a lot of work in about in about a week and a half. So is this like closing down summertime? Like people that don't know that MoMA is going to close from June to October as part of this like four hundred fifty million dollar expansion, where I read that they're going to like reconfigure the galleries, rehang the entire collection. Um, and then after it reopens, they're going to start rotating a selection of its art in its galleries every like six to nine months. What, I don't even know what you're going to do. Like what's you have planned for on your plate, but like, is that kind of exciting as like just something new? Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a mixed, I, you know, I have mixed emotions about it. You know, in some ways it is a little exciting, but also I, I, ha I sort of have this feeling about what's coming down the road and I'm not it like a little daunting to it. And I think it's going to be a little daunting and, and, um, it, I feel like, you know, as, as the painter, you're kind of stuck between people who make decisions and people who need those, uh, people who, who need to occupy the space. So, you know, a lot of times you're sitting around waiting for stuff, decisions to be made or to get some answer about how to deal with uh, a particular space about, you know, what color are we going to paint this, you know, gallery. Um, and so a lot of times, you know, I, I feel like we, we kind of get, we're like, we have to make up time that is lost, you know, because. Because like if you it, were to, if it would have, if you would have been able to get the green light, like much earlier, it would have been a much more comfortable painting experience. Sure. Yeah. Where I've had this experience in jobs where it's just like, well, no, but just because of the timeline that got so condensed, right? It, then it became like super difficult, <laughs> right? So we have you know three weeks to you know to paint you know let's say eight galleries, uh, and then it takes two and a half weeks to to make the samples for them to come to a decision, uh, and then so then you have half a week to paint six six <laughs> galleries, which is a lot to do, and 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 you know five four four days or whatever, but. Um, so that, it's that sort of stuff that I know is going to be coming down the road frequently as, as the museum, you know, has to come make these decisions and then you have to have meetings for people to make these sort of grand decisions. And then, uh, so I, yeah, I'm a little bit fearful of how, for example, how it's going to eat into my summer diving plans. Cause you know, I, oh, yeah, I, like it's, yeah. it'll, it'll probably, I have a fear. I'm very fearful that it's going to take a lot of my weekends, <laughs> summer weekends, away from me. Well, so I guess that's a question then about 
for MoMA, and I don't know if maybe this was when you were more the house painter, like were, were your hours typically, you know, I guess non-museum open hours? Yeah, so we do, we start at 7 in the morning, um, and the museum opens at, well, you know, now it's 9 for members, 9.30 for members, and, mm-hmm. you know, 10.30 for, for general admission. Uh, so we have that amount of time to kind of work in the public space and, and to get into some of the galleries before the crowds start showing up. Um, and then after that, we're kind of working back of the house stuff, or we're working um, on other other areas that are closed off. Or, or that so I guess then, closed. yeah. So the, at least with the summer closure, is that I guess not you have almost all the time in the world to work in the public spaces. But sure. I don't know if that matters as much. Well, for that's the idea. The plans. Is that, that you know, the, it's the museum is is now you know putting or it's going to be. You know, we, we've we've uh, taken over the new space, the new galleries. They've been handed over to museum by the by Turner, um, the construction crew who built the building, the new, yeah. new luxury towers next door. So we, we are now starting in that space, and then the idea is to move a lot of the collection into that space, and, and then in preparation for the closure over the summer, when a lot of those old galleries will be refurbished and and um, you know, redone. The floors will get redone in a lot of galleries. And, and so there will be a, a lot of work for us painting-wise and, and redoing walls. And, and like I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, like fixing walls that have been painted so many times that they start to get that, you know, orange peely kind of elephant skin looking yeah. texture to it. So a lot of that kind of stuff we're going to uh, try to address, you know, in that summer closure period yeah how many has there been uh, other times where it's been shut down for this amount of time and in, in like the how many like years you've been here and <laughs> no it's never it's never been shut down okay so this is going to be like a yeah i think even experience. when i think it was shut down this was before my time but when this noguchi building opened yeah um in 2000 2000 2001 i believe uh that you know it, it the museum moved out to Queens so it didn't you know technically it was shut down in, in Midtown but it you know it was still open in Queens they had a lot of the collection out there so even then it wasn't fully closed like it's going to be now so this is I think this yeah is sort there's of going to be a lot of like just tourists here in the summer they're going to be like wait what Can yeah go to MoMA <laughs> right yeah in fact a lot of people I know are like what how are they what are they going to do you know isn't that yeah. the busiest period of of a year and you know in the scuba season right yeah <laughs> what type of equipment do you just generally even like use to paint like what is like what's part of your arsenal here i mean you can nerd out a little in case there's like more knowledgeable brian painters listening i might not know yeah we i mean we basically you know uh we don't do any spraying oddly enough because of the artwork you know you would think that uh, you have such yeah. a, a huge amount of wall space that it would be so easy to come in and, and spray but uh, because of the HVAC system, they don't want any of that in, you know, getting into the system. And uh, I see. Um, so we we just use roller paint buckets and uh, yeah. So those like purdy rollers or yeah, like... exactly purdy roll. I mean, we use we use um, you know to try to prevent the texture going on for like the twenty one foot walls on the second floor. We use the three quarter nap or not not we don't even use the three quarter nap. We use half nap rollers. Um, and then we use three eighths nap on, on like most of the walls and then the tidal walls, we use quarter nap rollers, you know, just to keep that texture low. Um, and then the biggest, you know, the biggest 
thing, you know, because when I would mention the tidal walls earlier, like those used to be a pain in the in the ass. Like I would literally be sanding down paint on walls and in, in like hours, and <laughs> you know my shoulders would be burning and killing me, and like you're breathing in all this dust. And I used to think, man, there's got to be an easier way. So one of the things I did when I became the foreman or foreperson was that I, I bought a Festool and one and a vacuum sander, and that really changed. What's a Festool? A uh, Festool is is like um, I think it's a it's a German made. Um, you know, tool that, that, I mean, they, now they make all kinds of tools, but there was primarily for woodworking. Um, and they have a whole line of tools that, that a lot of people, a lot of craftsmen, a lot of workers really love their tools because, um, they're, they change the way you work and they make working a lot easier. For example, like we bought this dustless sander that allows us to sand the walls and not be, you know, inhaling dust all the time. And, and killing your shoulders and yeah so it's it's yeah and that's a lifesaver because a lot of times it's it's we're just sanding paint off the walls in order to keep it from building up so much you know Uh, i mean it's also keeping keeping the museum more spacious yeah yeah and that you know and that allows (laughs) that's why you had to do this big expansion is because all the paint is closing in the room sure i mean it's the museum has slowly been decreasing exactly like keep that square footage up (laughs) It's probably been losing, uh, I would say, like, uh, you know, a sixteenth of an inch easily every year. <laughs> yeah, it's not a good, good cost-effective thing long-term. But uh, what would be, your, like, your least uh, favorite and, like, least favorite just part of this job, do you think? Uh, breathing in the dust? What is it? <laughs> you know, this goes back to, I, I wanted to mention this in a question you had asked earlier, and I think it kept getting sidetracked. You'd asked uh, if... if um, you know, I started off as a house painter, right? And I, I love painting. I mean, I that's mm-hmm. I love painting. Um, so I would never get bored painting a wall white or painting, uh, you know, because I, I just it was I've always enjoyed it. I find it very meditating, meditative. You know, just to kind of you know you're just rolling paint on a wall and you kind of get in touch with your breath. You know, you're rolling up breathing in you know as you're exhaling as you're rolling down so you get into this flow and i always found it very nice like i would kind of zone out and start you know thinking about what i was going to make for dinner or or kind of work like thinking about problems that or or issues that in my own art and i could kind of work them out in my head while while kind of zoning out painting a wall and i really like that and and so you know then i became the four person and i'm not doing that as much anymore so I, i I, I kind of wish there were times when I really wish I, I could paint more Go and back to just, painting. just work on the walls because I love. Now that painting. you got into management, you're uh, yeah yeah got so, you away from your so <laughs> I, I I mean it's you know I I love working on walls I and I don't like working so much with people but now I have to work with people because you know uh, that's part of my job yeah um, <laughs> but I would much rather work with walls just because they're they're much more easier to deal with <laughs> i would imagine so so like it's almost like that's like your the least favorite kind of, of getting further away from the painting but it was also like your favorite part is getting is doing the painting right kind of. i think like, my, my least favorite thing is is having to manage painters in in general and that's uh, it's, it's, i'm sure it's all <laughs> sorts of different personality types too yeah because you know a lot of times it's it's like you're telling someone in it you know I w- it would be so much easier if I could just do it. Just let me, I'll do it. Yeah, you know? yeah, and, yeah. But, it, you know, you have to kind of let them do it so they can kind of figure it out. They can get the experience. They can, you know, if they make a mistake, they learn from it or whatever the case may be. But, uh, so there's a lot of times when it's, 
uh, I just that would be just <laughs> I, I can't explain to you how I how I think you should do it or how I think it's best to do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, because sometimes you have people with language barriers and and um, yeah. So, uh, so that's my least favorite thing is is trying to tell other people how to paint and and it's it's hard because you know I don't want to micromanage but sometimes yeah. you have you know if, if you do it in this very specific way it, it'll look good it'll be dry by this time and you know we'll be out of the way before the people come or before the art shows up so so sometimes you kind of have to make that point of like look yeah do x y and z and it'll be dry and we we can leave but if you're <laughs> going to do it like this it's going to take forever it's not going to dry and then you know yeah. um, so i try not to micromanage but sometimes you have to and and that's i, I would rather not sometimes i would just rather get in there and do it myself <laughs> i think you, i think i think you just really you just want to paint <laughs> it's, it's true man that's, 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 all, that's true so how did uh, okay so i guess then how did the actually like the, the your first painting job here come about or like what did you have a painting background before you said yeah so i <clears throat> did you I, work in commercial painting or residential painting before or no not no i i <clears throat> excuse me i worked with like i i grew up i mean you know, i was lived out in texas i went to school in austin and i had some friends who were artists and and uh, they had a uh, like a mural painting job so i started working with them at some point and that was maybe like the most sort of commercial work or yeah. any kind of work I ever did as, as a painter. Uh, I tried, you know, like there was another, I tried so many times to get jobs painting and, and I guess like people didn't, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of experience, but I knew I could do it. Like for example, yeah. when I was before, before college, like I had to get a summer job and like the only thing that occurred to me was to go around and ask people if they wanted their place painted, you know? And people would be like, oh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to, you know, that's a lot of trouble. <laughs> it's a lot of hassle. But it was, for me, it, it was, it seemed like something that I could do, you know? Yeah. So, and I tried in, in, to get jobs as like a faux finisher and, and do decorative finishing. But I could, people, you know, I just didn't have the experience. Um, this is in Texas. And then I moved to New York, right? So 2004, I moved up and I, uh, I was, you just walked into mom and you're like, hey, I, mean, I can paint in this place. Whoever's doing a crappy job on these walls. You know, oddly <laughs> enough, I had, I had come to the grand, the opening of the new museum, the Noguchi, with my ex-fiance. And I remember walking up the stairs in the atrium. And literally, I was like, man, who works here? And how, how do I get a job here? Like, yeah. how, how do I, you know? And a year later, I got a call from my union rep to, to go work at moma as a temp painter and wow. it's like okay so, and as soon as i got in the door i was like hey the other guy who was working here at the time as a temp painter i said paul like who who do i have to impress around this place to keep a job here and you know he kind of pointed the thumb at the at the foreman and said you got you know that guy um but that was you know that was that was kind of it it was like you know once i got in here i was like i'm, gonna, I'm just gonna work hard and do what i need to do and get the job done and try to be yeah, but basically, the your foot in the door came about. You you wanted the job, and then just randomly you got a call to get like yeah get so your it just it just happened. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I, mean, I I got in the union. It was a little bit of a of a fluke, not a fluke. Yeah, how was the process just, to get in the union? <clears throat> well, I you know 
you you know there's a lot of ways you know people do apprenticeships and then other people know people who mm -hmm. are in it and um, I happened to be working with a friend as an art handler. I was working as an art handler, and he quit because he had met some guy who was starting a paint company and needed to hire people because he just got this job at Carnegie Hall to do the gold leaf of, of the stage and the proscenium. And, uh. and, and so he suddenly got this job and needed to hire a bunch of people. And so my friend, Constantinos, was like, I quit. I'm going to go work for this guy uh, Carnegie Hall. I said, "Well, can can you get me? Is he still looking for <laughs> for other painters? You know, or other people?" So, so that's how I I signed up to work uh, for a company called Ernest Newman. They did dec decorative faux finishing, uh, and they got the contract at Carnegie Hall. So I worked that job for like three weeks and did Gold Leaf, uh, and then I kind of did a few random jobs for the union. I was I was sort of freelancing and just kind of picking up random stuff. And then uh, in the following January, my union rep called me and said, hey, you you know, I, there's a temp painter position at the MoMA. And I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll be there. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it, was, it was a little bit of, you know. Weird luck, weird luck. yeah, in yeah. The right place at the right time. And, <laughs> and, then, and then, you, then once you're there, you're just like, yeah. That's yeah. What, that's what I want. Yeah. yeah. You know, we're just going to jump right into the Brian questions. It's We'll end it up, uh, wrap it up then. Um, you know, let's just start with the first one. Do you know why your parents named you Brian? Yeah, I, I asked my mom one time. My I have an uncle named Brian, Uncle Brian, and uh, he's an <laughs> I Brian. I'm a Y Brian. And oh, so weird. I thought maybe, you know, maybe my mom <laughs> had named me after my uncle, but. Do you um, share the same last name? No. No. Uh, so that maybe that's why it's different, because like you know maybe the Y goes with uh, Reina, like the yeah. Y and Reina. Maybe that's like you know they wanted a little bit of a yeah. I, I, I mean, <laughs> pairing there. They just well, I think she just said she liked the name, you know. It, and I asked her if it was after Uncle Brian. She said, no, not really. It's just for whatever reason they like the name. So there's yeah. no specific you know answer that they gave me at least. Yeah, and and so it, do you have any Irish ancestry at all? Or is it, it doesn't it doesn't come from that then? Maybe <sighs> no. Um, I don't think we do have any Irish ancestry. A lot of Scandinavian, some French. Yeah. Uh, a lot of like, uh, you know, Hispanic, uh, Mexican, Indian on my dad's side. Um, and he's sort of got some Portuguese and like Northern African. Like he's sort of um, Mediterranean <laughs> and, and Mexican sort of mixture. But not, I, from what I, I, I haven't done the 23andMe or Ancestry.com, but from what I can tell from my mom's brothers and dads, like, there's no Irish, or it yeah. be like half a percent, maybe. Yeah, maybe. it's funny how, like, little uh, Irish Brian's I've encountered doing this. Yeah. <laughs> it's mostly just people like the name. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, like, do, uh, do you have siblings' names? Like, where does Brian fit into the... Yeah, I have one brother. He's older. His name is Kurt. Okay, so Kurt and Brian. Uh, what about, uh, have you named any, like, pets or, like, kids, uh, a boat, a scuba tank? Uh... Uh, no. <laughs> no. I, think I would feel weird naming something after myself. I have a cat. His name is Ollie. I didn't name him. Uh, Ollie, I, okay, yeah. okay. But, yeah, I call him Kit Kat sometimes. <laughs> um, okay, two-part question, dead or alive, uh, one other Brian to meet, who would it be? And then uh, dead or alive, favorite Brian of all, you know. Of all time, so yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I would love to have a conversation with Brian May of uh, the Queen uh, Queen's uh, guitarist. 
right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would love, I mean, I would, yeah, I would just be curious to pick his brain on, on some of our uh, space, you know. Yeah, he's a, I feel like he's another, like, uh, dual uh, interest Brian where it's like, yeah, he does, he's a rock star and an astrophysicist. Right, <laughs> yeah. I think he'd be an interesting person to have dinner with, maybe. Is he also your favorite Brian, or who would, who would that be? <clears throat> yeah, you know, that's a, I don't, I don't even know. I, you know, I. For a while, maybe Brian Cranston, maybe just because of of the, you know, the yeah, 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 recent. No, I mean he's a he's a he's a great one. He, he, yeah, he, he's I, I dare say probably the most uh, popular Brian right now. Yeah, and that's, <laughs> and that's same because I think that's the thing that comes to mind. You know, first is is him, but like as a kid, I was I was curious by bryant gumble you know because it was brian but with a t i thought i always thought that was interesting oh uh, but that's and, not a brian that he, yeah not that, really yeah. but it kind of it, it so <laughs> I, I for some reason i i liked him growing up but only because it was he was a different kind of bryant you know yeah he, kind of, he, he's like a yeah he's a he's a brian bastard off there. yeah right <laughs> right <laughs> okay here's a, here's a trivia question um in which European country is being a Brian a derogatory slang? Um, I can give you a multiple choice here. Um, Denmark, Poland, Netherlands, or Spain? Oh, man. I would... I would say Spain. <laughs> no, it's Denmark. Oh. Uh, I didn't know this before doing this project, but like, there's even a... Uh, Article on how to live in Denmark.com titled Danish Names, Why It's Bad to Be Brian. Um, but basically there was a brief trend in the 60s to give boys Americanized names like John or Tony or Kenneth, Alan or Brian. But they're now a huge burden to the middle-aged men who uh, bear them since they're associated with like working-class troublemakers. Brian, in particular, is sometimes used as a synonym for like an idiot, like a lowlife, uh, given its association with a not-too-bright Danish boxer uh, named Brian Nielsen. <laughs> And then now it's like I've even learned to, it's to the point where there's like this like Danish rap group called BFL, which stands for Brian for Life, and like their biggest hit, which is like has like almost half a million like views on YouTube, is called Det Brian, and it's all if you Google translate the lyrics, it's all just like like this is Brian doing this is Brian, yeah. It's like doing this type of thing he does is Brian, and it's like all this just like dumb things and right. saying it that's brian huh. that's fascinating I, that's fascinating i uh yeah I have no idea that so if you ever find yourself visiting a denmark you're gonna have to just be on the lookout that like he's if you introduce yourself right. you might get some like a little uh f- funny looks <laughs> huh. okay so here's a harder question uh, if you had to f- choose a first name other than brian uh what would it be oh man i think that's kind of easy because i my middle name is anthony and you know, I every summer before school, I would, I would be like, "This year is a year I'm gonna." When they ask me what I want to be called, I'm gonna say Anthony. You know, but I never did. But for, I would, I, for some reason, I would just, I would say Anthony. Okay, well, it's nice. It's nice that you know, like nice, nice that you liked your middle name enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, overall, would you say that being a Brian's been a plus or a minus in your life? I, I would say a plus. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I'm... an absolute plus. I mean, hands down. <laughs> no. Um. I, can't, I couldn't imagine being called anything but Brian, you know, like I... Yeah. I mean, the the only negative is usually just like, you know, the brain misspelling. Even if you're a Y, Brian, it happens. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and like, ha- has there been any memorable instances of it happening or just kind of like the random general 
uh, you know, I, all the time, I think people more often assume, like when they spell my name, they spell it with an I. And I, yeah. it's gotten to the point where I just, I don't even bother to correct them. I just figured like, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. Then, but it's interesting that like you, since you do get the misspelling of the I, then you also get the misspelling of the brain. It's just, it's just, it's just funny to me yeah. that the Y brains also get that right. unfortunate uh, right. <laughs> occurrence. Yeah. But yeah, no, I've, I've met, I've met uh, Brian, like I've heard like all sorts of like weird uh, scenarios with uh, the brain misspelling. Um, <laughs> it's just been interesting to just kind of collect these, uh, all these anecdotes. <laughs> yeah, I think I think people more often mispronounce my last name, so I have a tendency. Well, yeah, how do you like, actually pronounce it? I, I, I said uh, it just a minute ago, and I was like, "Is it was that how you pronounce yeah, it?" It's uh, it's Reina. Reina. Yeah, okay, so I think I got it right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think you need to get it right. A lot of people put mis, uh, pronounce it as Renya, which always confuses me because the Y <laughs> is not after the N. So why would yeah. Renya? You know, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. So it's always weird. <laughs> but people do it all the time. So looking back at all the Brian's you met in your life. Do you believe that there are any shared common characteristics or personality traits that might stem from being a Brian? You know, I don't think I've ever met a Brian I didn't like. Um, <laughs> so I would say we're all pretty, pretty, you know, easygoing, well-to-do guys. You know, we're pretty, uh, you know. Interesting, interesting. Because yeah. that's the one question that's just I never know what answer is going to come. It's all over the place. People. Yeah, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know any Brian's that I haven't. Yeah. You know. So in your personal experience, you've met a lot of good Brian's then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let's just, okay, we'll just end it with, uh, is there any message you'd like to just say to all the Brian's out there? Oh man. Keep, keep, keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> keep Brianing. <laughs> okay. Good. Be uh, your best Brian all the time. <laughs> Be your best. Brian. Thanks Brian. I mean, thanks for doing this. <laughs> no, thank you. This was, uh, this was perfectly random. <laughs>